Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and my eyes are hazel. Across the table from me is... I am Trevor from the Louis Riel Library, and before I read this, I thought this was a biography of Paul Newman. <laughs> Across the table for me is... Uh, I'm Toby, I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I have the bluest eyes. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary day, yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone, close the doors and turn off the phone, cause all I you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you, and we'd love to hear from you. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book, but first, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. You have a lot. You said you have a lot, so... Oh, I do. Yeah, go for it. Oh, okay, sure. You remember last month when we did uh, our podcast, and I remember expressing confusion at the phrase, pulling a face. Mm. Mm -hmm. The very next book I read after that had the expression, pulling a face, and it was by an American author. It was just a mystery novel. I thought, dang it, (laughs) I've probably been missing a bunch of these. It made me wonder if it's one of those things that's changed over time, uh, like the way younger people these days say on accident instead of by accident. And if like pulling a face is a more recent thing, but I'm going to say that and I'm going to read something by an older author that's going to have exactly the same thing. I don't know. And also related to last month, we were talking about Norse sidekicks. Mm, yep. Uh, I went shopping that evening with my wife. She bought Norse sidekicks. I had not mentioned anything about it. Wow. The universe is a marvelous, marvelous place. And we're lucky yes. to be here in it this very moment, sharing this time and space. <laughs> Were the Norse sidekicks as good as you remember them to be? Yeah, they're good. Yep. You remember the exact flavor or creed? Creed. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a honey garlic thing. Oh, yeah. Like noodles? Yeah. Honey yeah. garlic noodles. Yep. Mm. The sidekicks are, I think, always noodles. May I ask what your main was? Uh, I don't remember. Oh, yeah. It was probably chicken or pork chops or something like that. Or possibly fish. Mm. I've really narrowed it down. <laughs> As long as we're bringing things up, I also read I read a bunch of books this last month, and I recommended ones recommended by both of you. Ooh. So I finally read My Heart is a Chainsaw, which you had recommended uh, a while back. Yes. Which was awesome. It's crazy. It's wild. <laughs> like, Yeah. I spent half the novel not sure if it was completely unreliable narrator or just completely wild uh, slasher thing. <laughs> uh, I won't spoil it so that if anyone's reading, they can have that experience themselves. And... I read A Prayer for the Crown Shy, which we had also uh, mentioned, yes. and I agree with you that it was stronger than the first novel in the series, but really builds on it. Yeah. Those two novels just make my heart happy. Yeah. 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 They're very soothing. Anyway, that's me. Oh. You guys got anything? I have nothing. No, I mean, I was just going to you know, mention the day of recording. We're recording on April 25th, and right now we're in the midst of the first round of the NHL playoffs. The Winnipeg Jets are down... Three games to one. It's not uh, looking good. It's not looking good for them, but uh, by the time this podcast comes out in early May, we may be on to baseball, or maybe we'll still be talking about hockey. Why I even mention it just now? I have no idea. Except <laughs> that it has impacted the downtown with their parties and whatnot, and yeah, that's all I gotta say. Yeah, I won't even bother making a prediction now because it'll be well after the fact. <laughs> right. Well, let's uh, dive into the book. Toni Morrison. She was born Chloe Ordelia Wolford on February 18th, 1931 in Lorain, Ohio, the second of four children. Her mother was a homemaker and devout member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Her father was a welder. Um, her family had a love and appreciation for black culture. Storytelling songs and folktales were a big part of her childhood. At 12, she became a Catholic and took the baptismal name Anthony, which led to her nickname Tony. 
1949, she enrolled at Howard University in Washington, D.C. and graduated in 1953 with a B.A. in English. And then she went to Cornell for her M.A., which she completed in 1955. She started teaching first at Texas Southern University and then at Howard University. While working at Howard, she met Harold Morrison, who she married in 1958. Their first son was born in 1961, and she was pregnant with their second son when they divorced in 1964. After the divorce, she moved to New York City and worked as an editor at Random House, a position she held for 20 years. She was the first black woman senior editor in the fiction department, so in the role, she played a big part in bringing black literature into the mainstream. In between working as an editor and being a single mother, she wrote and published The Bluest Eye, which was released in 1970 when she was 39. Her second novel, Tula, was nominated for the National Book Award. Her third book, Song of Solomon, brought her to national attention, won the National Book Critics Circle Award, and allowed her to leave publishing and write full-time. Many novels followed, 1981's Tar Baby, and then Beloved in 1987. After that novel, which was highly acclaimed, did not win the prestigious National Book Award, dozens of black critics and writers wrote a statement in the New York Times that said, despite the international stature of Toni Morrison, she has yet to receive the national recognition that her five major works of fiction entirely deserve. Two months later, Beloved won the Pulitzer. In the 1980s, she started teaching again, first at the State University of New York in Albany, and then at Princeton, where she taught until she retired in 2006. In 1993, she was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, becoming the first black woman of any nationality to win. The Swedish Academy cited her novels characterized by visionary force and poetic import through which she gives life to an essential aspect of American reality. She continued to be active in the 90s and 2000s. She wrote essays and criticism, a libretto, plays, nonfiction, children's books with her son. She curated events at the Louvre, got an honorary degree from Oxford, was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama, and kept writing novels. Uh, her last book, God Help the Child, was published in 2015. She died from complications of pneumonia on August 5th, 2019, at the age of 88. Very full life. Yeah. The Bluest Eye, as uh, Toby mentioned, was Toni Morrison's first published novel from 1970. So the setting is Lorraine, Ohio, in the year 1941. Lorraine is a small town west of Cleveland on Lake Erie's shores. And our main narrator is Claudia, who's aged nine during the events of the novel. But we also hear her voice as an adult as she looks back at her childhood. Claudia has an older sister, Frida, and parents, and they're a typical middle-class black family of the uh, era, I would say. And a lot of the story is seen through Claudia's eyes. But I wouldn't say that Claudia is the main character, and uh, it's hard to say who the main character is. It's an ensemble of characters, a makeshift community of sorts. And we spend time learning about a number of different people throughout the book, but they're all connected to little Picola Breedlove, who's an 11-year-old girl, who dreams and prays that God will give her the bluest eyes so that she will be seen as pretty, the bluest eye. <laughs> In case you forgot. Well, I mean, I don't know. Jess was looking at me like he, was, he wanted more, and I wanted to give more, but I had no I, I more. Did, I did want more, but we'll just take what uh, you give us. Yeah. I, <laughs> these synopsises, I'm always torn between laying it. I was just saying, like, you don't have to read the book. Just listen to the synopsis, and you're there to, like, treating it like a little teaser. Hmm. And I, I never quite succeed either way. I think this one is a little difficult to encapsulate, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I know the impression I got from reading the description of the book did not prepare me for the book, I think. And the edition of the book I had had an afterword from the author in it. And it sounds like that was a very deliberate choice on her part to kind of disguise what you were getting into a little bit which was effective. Now, how did you guys find the book? Difficult. Not in the writing itself, although it is a writing style that I think is a little older and kind of more flowery than I'm accustomed to, but I didn't find it difficult in that respect, more the subject. This wasn't a book I, I didn't particularly enjoy reading, but I'm glad I read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it was beautifully written, but it was not a beautiful story. And I felt a weird relief when I kind of could got to the last page that I could very selfishly stop thinking about these characters, knowing that they definitely left an effect on me. 
I was pleased that it was so straightforward in terms of uh, being able to follow it. Because like you, Dennis, I had a different perception of what this book was going to be. From reading a synopsis, maybe like the synopsis I just read, I had a picture that it would be almost like told, like a first-person point of view, this little girl speaking in a child's voice, talking about her life growing up. and But it, it isn't. It's almost unlike... A People's History of Lorraine, Ohio, where it's as if a uh, documentarian came to town and interviewed people and got their life stories. And the characters are so complex. Somebody that you are supposed to hate is very complicated. And you're, and and you're wondering now, there's, there's so many things to each character. And there was one chapter, I believe it was the chapter that describes Pecola's mom, Pauline. And it, it did feel, I was like interviews, because it was like a narrator, and then there was bits in italics that were like uh, Pauline talking, you know, directly to the reader, or if it was a documentary, directly into the camera about her memories and things. And I, it felt like a really interesting like patchwork of um, almost like a mosaic of stories. This is if you were, you know, turning pages of a scrapbook, and there'd be a picture here, and there'd be a, you know, a Mary Jane candy wrapper stuck here, and and you're kind of revisiting this story from an adult perspective. And, and the other thing I but I would, again, this is just in terms of like the quality of the writing. It seemed like there were times where events would be mentioned briefly and then again from a different perspective. And then you get to see the whole story so that by the time you're done reading, I'm thinking, for example, the, the story of Choli in the woods when he's stopped by the two white hunters. We were, were told about that early on. That was a thing that happened. And then we actually see it from his perspective later on. And then so... You're left with the feeling like, you know, is this, is it, are, are these stories just like real stories? Is memory reliable? Is there one true version of events or are we, are we, are they getting layered and mixed together? Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. The storytelling style, the way you mentioned it, sometimes it's a first person perspective, uh, usually from Claudia. And then there's times where it seems like omniscient third person narrator. And then that one chapter with Pauline, the kind of third-person omniscient narrator, and then first-person from Pauline as if she's answering questions or telling a story to somebody. It's very non-standard, which threw me off a bit. And I I really normally don't like that stuff. But, you know, by the end of it, I'm I'm convinced by the writing style. I found that omniscient narration almost felt biblical in in a way. I kind of compare it to um, East of Eden by John Steinbeck, which is on my mind because I somewhat recently read it. There's this tone to it where it seems like it seems biblical and it gives everything that happens a larger importance and this kind of larger than life quality. Did, Did you feel that way? One of the rules of good writing that I've often read and that I often mention when I'm talking about writing styles I don't like is uh, show don't tell. Toni Morrison breaks all the rules constantly throughout this book. And she did a lot of telling. You know, it's like there's this interaction that you see between people. And normally you kind of base your opinion on what's happening. But then the narrator comes in and, and describes all these subtle psychological things and networks of influences and stuff and just tells you it's happening. And so it's kind of this authoritative voice from above. So, yeah, it could be taken that way as a sort of a biblical narrative. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that. And maybe I'm still not. Like to to have the author essentially tell you what's going on in everybody's mind and why they're feeling that way. But at the same time, that context is really valuable because otherwise the experiences are so far outside of my own that I have difficulty contextualizing them. So that omniscient, authoritative narrator voice kind of gives that context, which is beneficial, but also takes away a little bit of the experience of making your own kind of conclusion, like you're kind of drawn into certain conclusions. It's a deep book with a lot of complex things in it. And the most interesting thing to me actually was reading the afterward where she's describing like the what she at that point saw as the flaws in how she had written and what she might have tackled differently if she did it again. But uh, just reading it is like she's operating like, I don't know, two or three levels above me in terms of how she's thinking about story. It's a very rich text. It's I think this is a book that really lends itself well to study. 
because there's there's so much going on here. I, I watched a bit of a, a YouTube video that was a lecture from a woman at a, some college in L.A. And she spent about an hour, over an hour, talking about just the first few pages. And just hmm. you see how many layers of complexity there are and just the, the foreshadowing and the way she uses language. And, and it, there's, there's so much. Hmm. Um, if you're doing a close read, you can really you can really take away a lot. Which is tricky for me because I often don't do close reads. Like I read when I have time. And sometimes that means I'm not reading like even a whole chapter, especially with this had quite long sections. So I would get distracted. Like, you know, some action would be happening and then the narrator voice would kind of go into a lot of related contextual stuff. And then I would kind of lose the thread of what had been happening just before all of that stuff because that kind of took my mind. And then anything else that was distracting me was taking me away from the bit of the story. And then it would be like back to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. We're doing this. Like, this is what just happened. So I kind of felt sometimes like there were multiple stories and they were competing a little bit for my attention. Yeah, it did feel because it was broken into sort of the seasons, the chapters, there was sort of that, that feeling like almost like that, that biblical, we're telling a story bigger than the characters. But what the thing that I thought was kind of interesting and, and that kind of tied it all together was just how it seemed like you know, how the dominant white culture had such an effect on these characters and all of it in negative ways, although very differently. Like I, I even liked at the beginning where she quotes from the Dick and Jane books and how this is like, you know, the ideal world. And then uh, it starts, the, the sentences start running together, running together until it's just like fractured sentences and parts of words, almost as if like that, that sort of like ideal is just like now the background noise. Like it doesn't even make sense anymore, but it's, it's there. It's part of the fabric that everyone is holding themselves up against in the society and, and how difficult and wrong it is for these characters to, to want to live up to this ridiculous standard and to think that just because they were black, they're ugly and all of the horrible kind of consequences that play out from that basic idea. I mean, based on the description on the back of the book, I knew something terrible was going to happen to Piccola. And I spent a lot of the night and well, tells isn't you it right, in the first, yeah, first, yeah, right sentence in the first page that says that she's pregnant with her father's child. Yeah. 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 But I just kept like a lot of the novel. I was just reading it, kind of dreading what was going to happen. Like when that boy in the park, like, oh, the cat, you know, Junior invites her, her yeah. in to see the cat. Yeah. 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 Like that whole thing. I'm like, oh, shoot. Is this where something really bad happens? Like, and something bad does happen, but then it just a gets horrible worse. Thing. I know. Yeah. And I just spent so much time in the book like, oh, shoot, is this it? Oh, is this, uh, you know, kind of yeah. dreading the moment when something was going to happen. Yeah. And then from just to talk about the cat scene, then you're pulled back and it's the narrator again. And you're kind of like big level. And so you're just, you don't ever really see the direct consequences of that. And it's just another almost like vignette in Piccola's life. So it's like she's just kind of pushing our buttons in, you know, taking us right into a very intimate, detailed situation. And then, and then just when we, we can't take any more, then she like lets the pressure off and then starts talking about the spring and the trees and the, the marigolds and, and all these kinds of things. And then takes us into another area too. Like the farther away you get, the less horrible things look until you, you know, get a little bit closer and closer and closer. There were a lot of horrible things described in this book. I have a question. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about Choli Breedlove? <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't say you have a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, like that's something I just found extremely interesting about this book. I I don't know if if she's trying to make us sympathize with him in like a way you know like Nabokov was doing with Humbert Humbert mm. kind of thing, um, but you end up with very complicated feelings about this guy. Well, she said in the afterward that she didn't want to be complicit in demonizing people. And so she didn't want to make it a, like a simple narrative. And so what she ends up doing is laying out the generational trauma and examples of it. And as she said herself, not a representative sample, this is like extreme examples, but nevertheless, like, uh, giving an example of how generational trauma gets visited upon the next generation. And, oh, Choli, I mean, okay, the scene where the hunters, uh, 
Okay, so there's layers to that. Left on a garbage heap as a baby, rescued by his aunt, she dies. The only caregiver who's ever really, you know, he's ever really known. In the midst of that, of mourning, young love potentially, his first experience, the emotions must have been so, like, you know, overwhelming. And then to be interrupted in the middle of sexual activity by white men with guns pointed at them, forcing them to continue for their amusement as they laughed at them. Like, oh my God. (laughs) I can't even conceive of how traumatizing that experience. And then to go from there and search for his father and be just rejected flatly for like, Oh my God. Like it's really complicated. It is. And I mean, this is, you know, generational trauma is something that we talk about more in Canada, you know, the residential schools and all of the different fallout from that. Like, and that's not the only thing that happened, but that's kind of the focal point of a lot of what we think of with gener- generational trauma in indigenous populations in Canada. Usually when you like read a news story about like something bad that happens to someone uh, as a result of parental negligence or uh, abuse or something like that, the instant response is always just, what a monster. These people should be locked up and shot or whatever other simple solution comes to mind to the person reading the story because we're rightly horrified by the idea of harming a child. And just like with Piccola being raped by her father is is a horrifying, horrifying thing. And anybody would be angry, upset by that, as I was when reading it. But also, I'm angry and upset about what happened to Charlie. And it's not like there was anybody there for him to pull him out of that after that. And all that happened to him at like 13, 14, something like that. So yeah, I don't know how to... Usually, I'd like to read these books just a little before the podcast. So, like, I finished it yesterday, and I think it was a real mistake this time because I feel like this book has got to sit in my mind for a while mm-hmm. before I can process it. Well, what you're saying just now about you know hearing a story and say, and, uh, and being removed from it and just having a simple solution made me think of the situation in the novel when Nicola's mom is working as a maid in that white family. And then her employer says, well, you just have to leave. You have to leave them. Mm-hmm. Uh, like as if from her uh, perspective, her white privilege perspective, the answer is simple. He's bad and you need to leave without ever considering the multi layers of things like, you, you know, well, no, I'm not going to get alimony from him because he doesn't have anything. And where am I going to go? And what's going to happen? Like, like, no, I can't just leave. But thanks, you know, thanks for that. And then, well, I'll just not pay you then. It's like, like as yeah. if that's going to somehow, you know, and I just thought that scene was very poignant about, you know, this woman who, in 1941, telling a woman to leave her husband, it seemed kind of progressive and feminist in a way. Uh, and yet it was through her white lens of this is how it should be. And it, we see things, of course, through Mrs. Breedlove's eyes, Pauline's, and it's way more complicated than that. The complexity of the social structure and the interactions between people, that's, again, something she really highlighted very well. And, again, it's so far outside my personal experience that it's hard for me to process it well and really know how to feel about it. So you asked the question, now you got to answer it. <laughs> well, it, I, I, I think you summarized it very well. You can feel sorry for Choli at the same time as abhorring his actions, And I think that's a deliberate choice in this book. I think Morrison, she's not presenting you with an easy answer. Yeah. But then you get like Soped Church, who I don't think is sympathetic at all. Um, And so maybe he's where we can like put all of our our (laughs) hatred and anger um, because he's just a predator. Uh, and I, I don't recall there being anything redeemable. Yes, oh. that's a, that's I, a good word. I was word. definitely getting uh, love in the time of cholera vibes from Soap oh. Church, kind of like the way, especially he was, uh, had this thing for very, very young girls. And, uh, I mean, in that book, it was more, I don't know, it wasn't any better in that book, <laughs> but, but yeah, he was almost like a cartoon character. I thought he was the most of a caricature character and maybe almost a little bit of comic relief, although he, he's terrible. I, I didn't find any comic relief in him. I guess <laughs> just the way also... he kind of, ta- like the way he was writing that letter to God, I had to kind of like 
maybe not laugh out loud, but kind of smile at the absurdity of it. And the fact that he would use a little 10-year-old girl to do his bidding, like killing his housekeeper's dog. I don't know, maybe I But I'm, then, like, when Piccola comes to see him, you think, oh, shit, like, what's, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then, I mean, she kills the dog on his behalf, but, I mean, it could be way worse, knowing his history. So. Right, like, when you know his history, it's like, actually, that that was an okay uh, interaction. <laughs> Weird yeah, enough. I mean, exactly. You're right, it could have gone very badly. I don't know. The act of having that dog die the way it did in front of her is also so traumatizing, at a point where she was already freshly traumatized. I, I, the whole problem is any interaction with him at that point was not going to be good. But uh, why doesn't Toni Morrison make him redeemable? Like with all these other characters, she gives a lot of backstory and history so that mm. you feel sympathetic towards them. But with him, he's just bad. Is he supposed to be just the vessel that we just... Yeah, maybe. Uh, well... I got the impression from reading it that part of it is just he has serious mental health issues that are completely unaddressed. I mean, especially that letter to God at the end, like it is clear he is not in any way in his right mind. Well, and the gross thing too about him is that like he is well-educated. So he'll make himself out to be an intellectual or a person who people might come to and he has a history of preaching in the churches. And so he has, even though it's kind of like demented, a certain stature in that society as somebody who is a person of authority, which makes it even more horrible because you get to sort of see his the inner workings of his mind with that letter. And that, uh, like, I don't know what Toni Morrison was trying to say. Is that he's saying like, don't trust people even if they're well-educated or there are horrible people in all walks of life. I mean, not that his walk of life was particularly, I mean, I don't even know what you'd call him. The letter thing, too, was an interesting look into how someone might justify what they're doing. She took us into the heads of all, a lot of these characters and helped kind of see the internal logic that might drive some of these actions. Like, he was really soft-pedaling his pedophilia with the, you know, oh, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I'm gentle, I'm very gentle, and, you know, no no one should take offense at this, and the, the whole way of justifying all of that to make himself out to be righteous in the end, more righteous than God, that was a trip. But she didn't just lay him out as, like, this random kind of chaotic character. She gave him backstory and um, history and reasons for why he did what he did. So there's that. She added depth to it. But, yeah, I don't know what the, uh, the deeper meaning of that character is supposed to be either. What about characters we did like? I liked Claudia a lot. I thought she was plucky. I liked how she didn't subscribe to the white standard of beauty. You know, she thought it was ridiculous. She would destroy those <laughs> dolls that she received. And mm -hmm. I also appreciated, I don't know if I've ever seen this in a book where girls beat up other girls. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, these are like tough, tough girls. Uh, and I liked that. I liked how badass they were. Yeah, yeah they did. <laughs> that, was, that was a solution to many problems. Oh, I don't like the way that person said something. Should we beat her up? <laughs> it's like, um, <laughs> like you usually see boys doing that in novels and film. I was like, oh, girls are beating each other up. It was a bit of a revelation. Yeah, it's not the standard way of describing girls. The women in the story are, well, see, there's the complicated layering again, right? Like, the women were presented as strong and fierce, but also really constrained by certain roles. Again, Pauline, like, I don't know how to describe it. Just she was she was tough and strong, but also really wanted to be a certain way and wanted to fill these norms and got super into it to the point where. I guess that was part of the point of the novel, too. Like Toni Morrison said in the afterwards, a lot of the impetus of this was to describe kind of racial self-hatred and how a community might come to despise itself by holding itself up to other standards that were enforced from an external viewpoint. Pauline really seemed to exemplify a lot of that. Like she didn't like a lot of the other black people in the story. She had strong opinions. When I was a kid in like elementary school, they taught us history, Canadian history, and we learned about indigenous peoples. And we, we just learned the pre-colonization type stuff mainly. Because when I was a kid, late 70s, early 80s, uh, they didn't 
teach a lot of, well, they didn't teach anything. I never heard residential schools mentioned once when I was a kid. But I remember a teacher telling us that a lot of indigenous people didn't like the fact that they were indigenous, that there was something about that they didn't like. And as a kid, I didn't understand it at all. Why would they? I mean, everything we learned about indigenous peoples, they were brave and strong and they did so much cool stuff and they were, you know, uh, they should be proud of their history. This was my childhood impression of all of this. And I couldn't understand the concept of hating yourself based on your, on your race, on your culture, anything like that. Cause it's a hard concept, I think for a kid to grasp. And now, you know, you see it everywhere as an adult and the way Toni Morrison vividly brings to life the characters in the book and how they feel about themselves and how they're made to feel about themselves, all the external pressures that you see and how they're internalized among the characters. It's still hard for me to process, but I think this is the clearest description of it I've ever read. And that's why, like I say, I wish I had read it earlier in the month so I would have had more time to process my feelings about it. <laughs> Well, you can update us next month. <laughs> You're asking a minute ago, Toby, about any characters that we liked. And I quite liked Miss Poland and Miss China and Miss Marie, the three <laughs> uh, prostitutes that lived upstairs, the Breedloves. I think, again, like this book has a lot of shifting perspectives where you hear stories from different points of view at different times and you see things through different characters' eyes. And I think when we first meet the, these three women, they're in their own element. They're up in their room and they have this great banter back and forth and they invite Piccola up there and she kind of feels like she is welcomed and, and they don't mind having her around and just the dialogue and the play, like when they're saying, you know, Piccola, where's your socks? Uh, and she says, I don't know. And then the other character says, oh, uh, something in your house must love socks. And that's like a saying <laughs> she says, like if anything goes missing, like something in our house must love brassiers. And then you get to see those three characters or at least a couple of them later on when that lodger in Claudia and Frida's house, whatever, I can't remember his name, has them over. And, and you see, you know, you, you, you see how they're treated by Claudia and, and Frida's parents and stuff as, you know, they're not allowed here. They shouldn't have you in here. I hope they didn't touch the plates, they didn't touch the dishes. And I'm like, oh, no, wait, that's just, that's just Miss China. That's just Miss Pol Poland. That's Miss Marie. Like, and, but it, it, again, our first impression of them is shown in, in such a kind of a loving, bright way, I think, that uh, that that image carries with me throughout the book, even though I like those three women. Mm -hmm. They were definitely a spot of sunshine in a very dreary novel. And I like how they're not treated as like poor, you know, Les Miserables type mm -hmm. sex workers. They have a lot of agency and they're positive and welcoming. And yeah, I liked, I liked those three a lot. They were very practically minded. <laughs> and also they treated Piccola like, like they would treat anybody else, like an adult. They didn't talk down to her. But also, they didn't explain anything. I, I thought it was really interesting how uh, adults were talking to the children in this book because when they did talk to them, which like sometimes they were just completely ignored, but when they did talk to them, they didn't explain a lot of what they said. And you could see like the kids trying to kind of make sense of things based on what adults had been saying, but there was so much incomplete information as a result of that, and they couldn't really ask follow-up questions. Which reminds me of how I felt as a kid, too, when I just didn't understand what was going on around me a lot of the times. Yeah, and that, and that sort of speaks to Tony Morrison's quality of writing, that it, especially in those early scenes where Claudia is narrating the story from her nine or ten year old self and she talks about like her mom talking to her neighbors and there's that great banter back and forth too about like the different people the gossip the town gossip and i was just gonna there was one little passage i was gonna read where uh, it's after one of these exchanges uh, tony morrison writes their conversation is like a gently wicked dance sound meets sound curtsies shimmies and retires another sound enters but is upstaged by still another the two circle each other and stop Sometimes their words move in lofty spirals. Other times they take strident leaps, and all of it is punctuated with warm pulsed laughter, like the throb of a heart made of jelly. The edge, the curl, the thrust of their emotions is always clear to Frida and me. And then it goes on and says, We do not, cannot know the means of all their words, for we are nine and ten years old. So we watch their faces, their hands, their feet, and listen for truth and timber. Hmm. So. I have underlined the throb of a heart made of jelly. I, I love that. <laughs> I mean, I think in many ways, this book is about a loss of innocence. So, you know, these kids 
start out, Claudia, Frida, Piccola, they start out not knowing about love or sex or their body. And then by the end, they, they know a lot more for better or worse. Yeah. I'm just thinking, just reminded of the, that heartbreaking, the lovely moment where Claudia and Frida, they're the only ones that seem to be thinking about Piccola and all of that. And what can we do to help? Well, maybe we can plant these seeds and say the magic words and, you know, uh, mm. yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So completely powerless. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to find some way to exert a positive influence or a positive force. And of course, they never had a chance of doing that, but they tried. And they feel bad about not having made things better, which I think happens a lot to children. Yeah, because at least in Claudia's case, like we know that she makes it to adulthood because some of the narration is her as an adult looking back. So she made it okay. But then towards the end, it talks about all the characters like Sammy moved away and, you know, Nicola died. Like it just kind of, you know, all these characters that we're talking about are no longer here. They did not, we don't know exactly what happens to them, but they didn't survive. It didn't go especially well. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very depressing book. After I finished reading this one, I jumped right into a romance because I, I needed something with uh, consensual sex in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Something simple where everything makes sense and nothing is so horrible. And there's a happily ever after. Yes. I guess we've talked a bit about this. Do we have any final comments we want to make before we move on? Would you recommend it? Like I said at the beginning, I'm glad I read it, but I, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like, I don't know a situation where I would say this this is a book that you should read or, yeah, I, it's a tough one. I don't know who I would recommend it to. I would say if you're looking for something that really describes generational trauma well, this is a good choice. If you want to really have your emotions churned for a while, it's a good choice you want to read something very serious and weighty, then go for it. But uh, yeah, maybe be a little ready for it because it, it's, a, it's a hard read emotionally, but definitely a valuable, like worthwhile kind of thing. I will say this about uh, The Blue Sky is that I feel like I got way more out of it than I did the only other Toni Morrison book that I've read, which was Beloved. And the reason I read Beloved, and I'm not proud of this, so when I was at university, I had a burgeoning friendship with a, uh, a woman. And in the early days of the uh, friendship, yeah, you know, you talk about things that you like. And her favorite book in the world was Beloved. And she gave it to me to read. And I was then in turn to give her a book that I enjoyed. And that is a tricky proposition. When somebody <laughs> that you kind of like, that you also want to impress, gives you their book. And you read it and... Not only do you not like it, you don't understand it. Like, Did you give her Pet Cemetery in return? No. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I think I gave her something that I thought would impress her. I can't even remember exactly what it was. But yeah, I should have given, been honest and said, this is, this is it. This is, this is, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to know what I'm all about, read Pet Cemetery. Yeah. I mean, things kind of cooled off with between mm -hmm. me and her. There, but uh, I don't know if it had to do with Beloved. But, you know, I also was trying to think of constructive things to say because, you know, because I kind of I liked her. But boy, it was kind of a, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Even saw the movie, hmm. love it, trying to make sense of it. That's tough. It's a tough read. I mean, it makes the, the bluest eye, you know, seem like a, a romp. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm a little afraid to read more Toni Morrison because of her ability to churn my emotions. It's kind of like how I feel about Miriam Taves, where I really liked uh, the book we had read for the podcast, but... Also, it was such an emotional gut punch that I want to be careful about my timing for reading any mm. more of hers because I know she can do that. Yes. And I know Toni Morrison can do that. So, yeah, a well-written, really good book. But also, yeah, I'm going to be really careful about whether I read another Toni Morrison or not just because I got to be emotionally on the spot for it. Mm -hmm. That's why I would hesitate when you're asked about would you recommend it? I'm like... I don't know, because this book, if you read it, you know, uh, in good faith, you will come away changed, but emotionally affected for sure, I think. So, yeah. Well, let's just leave it at that, because uh, mm -hmm. like I say, this is a book that takes some processing and uh, you, dear reader, can decide for yourself if you haven't read it already, if you think that what we've said makes you want to read it more. And if you do, let us know how you felt afterwards. So with that, we'll move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? 
Okay, so a book I would recommend highly that kind of deals with similar themes is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. This was one of my favorite books the year I read it, which was 2020. I believe that's the year it came out. It's about black twin sisters, Desiree and Stella, um, who grow up in a small town in the deep south where each generation gets lighter and lighter skinned. So Desiree is very, very dark and Stella is very light. And the sisters leave home for bigger things in New Orleans. And one morning, Desiree wakes up and Stella is gone and Stella's realized that she can pass for white. And so she goes off and makes uh, a new life for herself as a white woman. And Desiree, on the other hand, marries the darkest man she can find and returns to her hometown um, with, with a daughter in tow. And though the sisters are apart, their lives and the lives of their daughters become intertwined. And it's just a gorgeously written book. Uh, it explores the history of passing, but looks at really more than just race. And after I read it, I recommended it to everyone. And I'm really glad I got to remember it because it's, mm. it's a great read. <laughs> I kind of uh, struggled with my pick this month, and the book I did pick I felt maybe was a little too on the nose, but I picked The Color Purple by Alice Walker, which originally was published in 1983 and went on to win the Pulitzer Prize, uh, making Walker the first black woman to win that prize. She also won the National Book Award for fiction that year. It was made into a movie directed by Steven Spielberg and recently a musical that played on Broadway and also the Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre had a production which I believe has the distinction of being the last musical I saw before COVID. And it's fantastic. So it's a story, uh, they call it a powerful cultural touchstone of modern American literature. It depicts the lives of African-American women in early 20th century rural Georgia separated its girls, sisters Celie and Nettie sustained their loyalty to and hope in each other across time, distance, and silence. Through a series of letters spanning 20 years, first from Celie to God, then the sisters to each other despite the unknown, the novel draws readers into its rich and memorable portrayals of Celie, Nettie, Shug, Avery, and Sophia and their experience. It uh, broke the silence, the novel did, around domestic and sexual abuse, narrating the lives of women through their pain and struggle, companionship and growth, resilience and bravery. Deeply compassionate and beautifully imagined, Alice Walker's epic carries readers on a spirit-affirming journey towards redemption and love. Color Purple by Alice Walker. Doesn't the movie version of that have Oprah? And then Beloved also has Oprah? Yeah. Does yeah. and and Oprah also produced the Broadway mm. musical. Okay, <laughs> she brings everything together. She Oprah. does. We found the uh, we found the thread. <laughs> so my recommendation might be a bit of a cheat because it's a book we covered in the past before, but I'm going to recommend The Break by Katerina Vermette. Both authors are quite skilled with language. Katerina Vermette is a poet as well. And they both deal with issues of poverty and racism, shown mainly from the perspective of young women. Uh, the Break is set in Winnipeg and is contemporary rather than historical, but it's a book that I can't recommend often enough, especially if you live in Winnipeg. It is always worth a read. And then we will move on to our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein we chat about words that are on our minds. My word comes straight from the novel. If you remember the chapter with Charlie growing up and his Aunt Jimmy, he would often talk about that smell of the horrible thing that was around her neck. I'd never heard this thing before. It was an asafetida bag, asafetida bag. And I was like, what is that? Well, I can tell you uh, what asafetida is. It's, um, or the bag, I'll just read out this thing, which I got from the South Dakota Agricultural Heritage Museum. And I have a photo of one, which I can put up on the website. Asafetida, uh, or asafetidi bags, were a common sight, or rather a common smell, during the late 19th and early 20th century. These little bags were purchased at local pharmacies and stuffed with various pungent herbs to ward off diseases and evil spirits. The herb-filled bundles were also used to treat asthma, colds, bronchitis, anxiety, polio, measles, and hysteria. In 1918, asafetida was approved by the U.S. Pharmacopedia to ward off the Spanish flu. Asafetida is a soft, brown, lumpy gum resin from the genus Ferula in the parsley family. It has a strong garlic or rotten egg odor. And combined with onions, garlic, fennel, and other herbs made asafetida bags a really stinky accessory. And then 
they they end here saying that they they suspect that the smell coming from the bags actually helped people social distance, that, which actually <laughs> then went, lowered the germs more than anything else. So, again, I think as far as COVID goes, please go out and get vaccinated. Do not uh, ask for of eggs. Don't don't try them out. Not only will they be smelly, but they don't. I don't think they work. And for for those that are in the studio, there's a picture of them, what they look like, <laughs> and we can share that with the uh, on the website. That's my nerd word. Fascinating. Kind of reminds me of the hippies who wore like the like little hemp pouches with their weed in it. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah. I mean, is mine word? It's a thing, uh, kind of like your thing. It's Meganoline, um, ah. which mm. refers to Miss Marie, who the sex worker who lives above the breed loves, who's also referred to as the Meganoline. Did either of you know what this was? I had no idea. It's something from World War One or. WW2? Yeah, or? yeah. So it is from World War II. Um, okay. It's essentially yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, a line of concrete fortification, obstacles, and weapon installations built by France in the 1930s to deter invasion by Germany. It was 280 miles long and impervious to most forms of attack. Uh, it included dozens of fortresses, underground bunkers, minefields, and gun batteries, and was designed to withstand heavy artillery fire and poison gas. It was built at a cost that possibly exceeded $9 billion in today's dollars. However, instead of being stymied by the line, German forces just went around it, driving their tanks through a wilderness area in Belgium that the French wrongly assumed would be impenetrable. So the line has kind of become a metaphor for expensive efforts that offer a false sense of security. So I guess that's why we get Miss Marie having this nickname. I mean, she's also described as fat and the Megano line is quite, quite a hefty thing. So that could have something to do with it, but it was just something I had never heard of before. So hmm. I didn't realize it was actually like a physical yeah. uh, thing. I heard of it. I thought maybe it was just almost like a, like a line on a map saying this is, this is mm. where the French would have their defenses. I didn't realize it was actually concrete, you know, uh, fortifications. Yeah. And I believe there's remnants of it mm. still that you can go visit if you're, if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah. I knew it was something to do with defensive fortifications and I assumed the nickname was because she would be a hard woman to get past. Mm, like yeah. she'd be tough. Yeah. You know? It's interesting though, to have this like European military reference in, in this book, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my word isn't related to anything particular in the book. I was looking around for interesting words, and I found psychrophilic, which, according to Merriam-Webster, means thriving at a relatively low temperature. Now, this is normally applied to bacteria, but this is Winnipeg, and it's spring, and every time <laughs> I see snow on the ground and people wearing shorts and t-shirts, I'm now going to think they're psychrophilic. <laughs> it wouldn't be spring in Winnipeg without uh, people competing to see who would wear shorts first. We actually have a coworker I won't mention by name right now, but I know he always found Winnipeg in summer to be way too hot, but really loved the winter and would often be wearing shorts while working in the winter and finally comfortable, which I always found hard to comprehend, but everyone's wired a little differently. Some of us are wired to appreciate the cold more. Anyway, that's all the time we have for this month. So thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey. Franny Stone had always been the kind of woman who was able to love but unable to stay. Leaving behind everything but her research gear, she travels in Greenland with a singular purpose, to follow the last Arctic turns in the world on what might be the final migration to Antarctica. Franny talks her way onto a fishing boat, and she and the crew set sail, traveling even further from shore and safety. But as Franny's history begins to unspool, a passionate love affair, an absent family, a devastating crime it becomes clear that she is chasing more than just the birds. When Franny's dark secrets catch up with her, how much is she willing to risk for one more chance at redemption? Epic and intimate, heartbreaking and galvanizing, Charlotte McConaughey's Migrations is an ode to a disappearing world and a breathtaking page-turner about the possibility of hope against all odds. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time, time to Read.
want to hear my fun facts? Yes. Okay, so it's illegal for more than five women to live in one house in Ohio. Why? Uh, prostitution. <laughs> Automatically, when there's five women, yeah. they must be sex workers. You know, workers. they're up to no good. Yeah, okay. And I just thought of that. I thought it, I they could that also be witches, be- you know. <laughs> but anyway, I thought that kind of tied in nicely with the story because of Miss China hmm. is folded in the Maginot Line. And because uh, Pekala goes and gets candies and has a hard time in the, uh, the store, did you know that lifesavers were invented by uh, Clarence Crane of Garrettsville, Ohio in 1912? And they were um, billed as a summer candy because mm-hmm. they didn't melt like chocolate. Uh-huh. I think in the last session of first aid I took, the person said they were made for diabetics because they can't be swallowed. Like they, you can't choke on them. I'm pretty sure you can. (laughs) Is it because there's a hole in it? Yeah, and also like the sugar you give. Maybe I think this guy was bullshitting us. Or maybe they're for diabetics in the summertime. (laughs) Hmm. Conscious diabetics. Exactly. And the only my other fun fact uh, I just thought I'd share with you for no reason other than just because it was fun is the Ohio state flag is the only flag in the states that's a pennant. Mm. It's not a, a conventional rectangle. No explanation as to why. You're hmm. into flags, huh? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't until last month <laughs> <laughs> when the uh, Kyrgyzstan flag, as the yurt, got me. And this is, I mean, this is neither here nor there, but I just found another very weird thing about Ohio, which is um, they have this weird basket culture. So, uh, you know, I didn't mention on the episode because people get tired of hearing it, but I did a little uh, Google Street viewing of Lorraine, <laughs> and I came across an Easter basket. Uh, in a park in Lorraine. It's like a just it's not that exciting. It's like a, a planter in the summertime. It looks like an Easter basket and there's some sort of big eggs in there, but also flowers. But then there's also something here called the uh the Longa Burger Company, which was known for making baskets. And so they have this thing that was the world's largest bath like a picnic basket. Uh, in a town, and then was outdone mm-hmm. by their own company. Where this is actually their headquarters. These, this is a building. <laughs> These are windows uh, in the shape of the basket. But now the company is defunct, and this thing is sitting empty. And I was trying. To, they're trying to sell it. Maybe turn it into condos. Maybe a high end hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, where is that giant basket? Uh, the giant basket is in Newark, Ohio. Lesser known Newark. It's it's seven stories high and uh, 180,000 square feet. The other one, the smaller, once you see this, these ones just look like shit. Like, why would you even bother going to see these things if you know this thing exists in the world? But this one here, for those that are interested, uh, someplace called Basket Village, USA. 